Thriving in divorce and beyond means not having to worry about the safety of your children when it comes to co-parenting. With alcohol abuse on the rise, many co-parents are turning to the system committed to providing proof, protection, and peace of mind. Soberlink's alcohol monitoring system is the most convenient, reliable, and reasonable way for a parent to provide evidence that they are not drinking during parenting time. Soberlink's real-time alerts, facial recognition, and tamper detection ensure the integrity of each test so you can be confident your kids are with a sober parent. With Soberlink, judges rest assured that your child is safe, attorneys get court-admissible evidence of sobriety, and both parents have empowerment and peace of mind. Pull back the curtain on the mysteries of parenting time and trust the experts in remote alcohol monitoring technology to keep you informed and your kids safe and secure. To download the resource I created with Soberlink, Divorce and Addiction, A Guide to Move Forward, visit www.soberlink.com backslash Susan. Coming up on today's episode of the Divorce and Beyond podcast. And I just want to say to anyone who's listening that Susan and I hear you and we know this is serious. I get very upset when I see these advertisements, as you mentioned, and Soberlink mentioned with fun, like, look how fun, how much fun you can have. You know, some part of the population can have fun. A big part of the population cannot. Hello, and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. As a top divorce attorney and family law mediator for 30 years, I know what you need to know to get through your divorce, and most importantly, how to move beyond it to thrive and transition to your new future. My experts and I are here to give you the insider view into the process, so listen in for the wisdom and expert information you need on your journey through divorce and beyond. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host, and today we are joined again by Dr. Elizabeth Cohen, the divorce doctor. Hi, Dr. Elizabeth. Hi, Susan. Thanks so much for having me. I love being here and with your audience. Makes me so happy. Thanks for having me. Me too. I just told you I basically like run through my little Rolodex of topics in my mind and come up with topics that you and I can talk about so that I can have you back on the show. Um, I love having you on and I know my listeners, you know, my listeners really connect with you. Um, For those who are out there listening right now who haven't heard Dr. Elizabeth's, I think seven other episodes There's plenty of them. Go find them. We've talked about toxic masculinity, divorce and depression, anxiety and depression during COVID. One of your episodes, When Will This Be Over? And we were talking both about COVID, which still, as we tape this, is not over, and divorce is taking forever. That's in the top 10 episodes. Um, We have so many episodes, but this one, this one's really important for a variety of reasons. Oh, another episode was your book, Light on the Other Side of Divorce. Her book launch, it's right behind her. For those of you who are watching um, on the YouTube channel, go get the book if you haven't yet and listen to that episode because she dropped some great tips for finding the light on the other side of divorce. So, um, But today we're going to talk about 
the fact that April is Alcohol Abuse Awareness Month. This is a topic that I really want to shine some light on for a variety of reasons, some of them obvious. And when I thought about who can I bring on as a guest, for those of you who have heard Dr. Elizabeth's other episode, read her book, know that she has had her brushes with alcohol abuse. I have as well. I've shared in other episodes that I am a child of an alcoholic father um, and have a variety of other brushes with um, alcohol use disorder in my life as well. And frankly, we're not special. Dr. E. Elizabeth, are we? We, I mean, alcohol abuse, unfortunately, is, I think I just read a statistic today that alcohol abuse is the number one disease in the United States. Yeah. I want people to also understand that we've all been affected by alcohol use and abuse because anyone ever watched Mad Men? What do you think was happening when a lot of the laws that we have today for us were being made. They were made at bars. They had, you went into someone's office and they'd open up and have a bar. So we've all been affected by alcoholism, even if it wasn't in our family or friend directly because of the prominence and the normalizing of alcohol in, in the world. Right. We glorify it. You know, you mentioned Mad Men. That is, my father was in advertising. That was my childhood. I knew how to make a gin martini with dirty. Um, I think by the time I was probably eight or nine, I was a bartender for my dad's parties because he was always entertaining guests. I've never actually watched very much of Mad Men because it reminds me so much of of living through that. But we we live in a society that does glorify alcohol to a large degree. We we drink it to celebrate. We yep. drink alcohol to decompress and de-stress. It's so ingrained. We, we think we need it to have a good time. There's just so much about it. In fact, Soberlink, um, which is one of the sponsors of the show, they, they had a post today on Instagram that I put into my stories because I thought it was so powerful. And it was about all of those things. You know, we think we need it to have a good time, say on vacation or something like that. Is it really that we need it to have a good time or is it that we want to be someone else in Mm -hmm. order to have a good time? You know, that was one of the points that they pointed out, one of the myths of alcohol. And that Mm -hmm. actually, that's so sad to think about. Yeah, it's really painful. And I just want to say, as we start talking about this, I just want to, I really want to say and send my heartfelt um, condolences to those of us who have lost people to this disease. This disease is deadly. Just because our society accepts it does not mean the reality of it is that it takes lives. Yeah. We've lost two people this week in my in my clinical practice to alcohol. Yeah. And so this is not about having fun any you know um this is about people who try to find a way to cope with the unmanageable experience of emotions, which we've talked about on a, on a lot of your podcasts with us together, that coping with emotions through substances is what ends up leading to substance use disorder. It is somebody who is innocently trying to manage the difficulties of life, but the substance itself 
becomes destructive because you need more and more and more. And I just want to say to anyone who's listening that Susan and I hear you and we know this is serious. I get very upset when I see these advertisements, as you mentioned, and Soberlink mentioned with fun, like, look how fun, how much fun you can have. You know, some part of the population can have fun. A big part of the population cannot. And it's really important to be clear about everyone's, their own relationship to alcohol. A whole new thing that's happened um, that really disturbs me, I wonder what you think about this, Susan, is this whole mom wine thing. Uh, Yeah. Mommy's little helper has gone from being Valium to being a glass of wine at the, well, and I see, you know, you, you talk about you talked about the glorifying and the advertisements. You know, I see on social media quite a bit people yes. f- posting things, and, and they're my friends and and people I know and people I don't know. It's just a very popular thing to be like, "Whoo, I've just had the longest day ever." And then, you know, I saw someone the other day; they had a glass of wine that was the size of you know a, a keg, um, and it's funny and it's not funny. Right. And I think for those of us who've been touched by alcoholism, it can be very triggering. Um, People would not write, I had a really hard day and put a needle injection in their arm if they were going to do heroin. Right. And so why are we okay with that, with it being alcohol? Um, I also think, Susan, and tell me what you think about this, but I'm always concerned about when people post a lot about alcohol and booze, because as someone who, you know, has chosen to be sober and not because I have an addiction. It's just not a topic of my of conversation. I went to a wedding recently and every toast talked about how drunk the parents like to get with the kids. Like every toast, it came up in some way. And I, my heart really broke because I thought if we're talking about this so much, something is probably going on with it. Just like anything, right? Right. You find you're talking all the time about how you look like you probably have some insecurities about how you look. And so I really want to encourage people to just take a moment and notice how much you think about wanting to have a drink, talk about having a drink, think about drinks as like the fun activity, like just start noticing, you know, I'm all about awareness. Just start noticing your languaging around it your experience around it. Just start noticing. I think that's really just a interesting thing to, to try. Yeah. I, I love that you point that out. I'm also a person because of my family experience that has chosen not to drink in, in my life. And, you know, one thing that I notice is that that makes people uncomfortable. You're right. Um, you were saying that about the wedding and I'm thinking, you know, at times, and it's very well-meaning on the part of many people like, oh, I don't want to drink in front of you if it's going to be mm-hmm. difficult for you. And and I'm like, no, it's not difficult for me. Do what you want. But it makes other people uncomfortable. Um, and I always just wonder, is that discomfort because just what you were saying, is is it something that actually is a sensitive subject for you? And my not drinking is something that then shines a light on that for you, which is not the intention. It's my personal choice. I have no opinions about other people's personal choices in that. And I do want to say that you've said it. I want to say that this, this episode is not about people should not drink. That is, that is not what we are talking about 
at all. This is, you know, alcohol abuse or substance abuse. And unfortunately, part of that is the fact that our society aggrandizes it as a substance, as something that is, is, you know, exciting and fun and necessary and normal that then for people who don't have the ability to drink normally or imbibe alcohol normally, it allows it to get out of control. It fosters that relationship because you're not, you're not, Hey, you're just stopping in at the bar to have a drink. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not visiting the opium den, smoking a pipe or going to the, you know, crack house and, and, Whatever you do in a crack house, I'm not sure. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I think they smoke cra- I think they smoke crack. Okay. Um, so <laughs> one of the things I remember someone telling me this story that, you know, 10 teenagers go on a ski trip um, and one of them brings, steals a bottle of vodka from their dad's or mom's house. They all drink it. They weekends over, they go home. I think the percentage is like two of those eight of those kids go home and don't really think about the vodka again. Two of them can't wait to get another drink and try to find another one as soon as they can. Yeah. And I always say to my kids, like, we don't know which of the kids you are, especially because of their family history. Like this is where the curiosity comes. What is my relationship with this substance and how literally it is a relationship because Mm -hmm. I remember when in my situation where my ex-husband struggled from alcohol abuse disorder Um, What happened was his relationship with alcohol became the primary relationship, no longer his relationship with me or our children. It is really a relationship. So asking yourself, what is my relationship with it? Can I, um, do I know ways to relax, to have fun without it? You don't have to, but do you? And I think a big piece that comes up so often, I can't tell you how many times I hear this, Susan, is like, well, they're functioning or they're not, you know, under someone said it to me the other day, like it's not like they're under a bridge with a paper bag. That is one way that someone substance use disorder manifests itself. Like right. there's so yeah. many phenotypes, right? Like yes. we all look, I, you have blonde hair. I have brown hair. Like we look different. So does substance use disorder. (laughs) (laughs) You have brown hair and blonde hair. (laughs) So there are different ways for it to manifest. And so I live in New York City, live in Chicago. Many people have jobs that involve going out every night and drinking as part of their job right? That person might struggle with a substance use disorder, even if they're bringing in a really big paycheck. You might be a mom who gets your kids to school, packs the lunches, does everything you need to do, gets them to the doctor's appointments and can't go to sleep at night without three glasses of wine. And one of my clients recently, who is the latter, a mom, she didn't even know how much she depended on her drinking. And it was only one glass of wine until she had to stop drinking for something. And she realized this huge flood of emotions that came through. She was managing her emotions by drinking alcohol. And she, she had no idea. You know, you mentioned that it becomes the primary relationship. And that reminded me of a conversation I had recently with someone who had given up drinking. And they said, one of the big reliefs in post- drinking life was that their life was no longer all about when am I going to get my next drink? 
Where am I going to get my next drink? How can I get my next drink? And I hadn't realized, but the way he was describing it is it was really a constant of, you know, we're going out for a hike. Well, that's a four hour hike. There will be no bars out in the wilderness. Do I bring a, you know, just so I can have a one drink, a beer, do I bring a six pack with me? You know, it, it was something I hadn't even thought of, but he, he was like, it was exhausting yes. to have my life controlled by the need for my next drink. Now that is very clearly disordered, right. but, and it may not be at that level for everyone, but I love that you've invited people to just think about your relationship with yeah. that one glass of wine. Yeah. And so many people during COVID, I remember, were just, especially with working from home during, not during COVID, but during sh- shutdown and lockdown, you know, would ha- the glass of wine or whatever the drink was, was the thing that delineated work and, and home. And so it would be this transition object, basically, is what we would call it. And then because things were so stressful, it was reducing stress a little bit. I mean, it became very prominent for a lot of people. And I've heard a lot of clients who are having trouble taking that out because we were, as I've always said, we were dealing and are dealing with an existential trauma. There's a lot of stress. And so look, numbing out is one of the ways to manage. And, you know, we can be addicted to alcohol. We can be addicted to Netflix. We can be addicted to our phones. I mean, this isn't this. And it's, it's about how we manage the difficult emotions And I'm so glad you share that story about the preoccupation with like, where am I going to get my next drink? Because you're touching on like the energetic pull of needing something to get you through. Right. People do this, you know, on first dates or any date. I always say to people like, would you go drunk to a job interview? Why are you drinking on a first date? Like this is way more important than a job interview. (laughs) Right. But people just think, oh, I have to drink to have fun or, or to relax or to look cool. And I just, I I really feel like we have a a false sense of, um, I guess what it really comes down to, it just just occurred to me, Susan, is like our difficulty as a culture with being present. Mm -hmm. Being in the now when the, when the now is hard. Right. Like that's why I don't drink when I'm with my friends. I want to be present I don't want anything to take me out of that moment. And that is what substances do. Yeah, that's why we're so attracted to them. You know, it struck me when you were saying we're dealing with this ongoing stress. So we numb out with a cocktail Hmm. and then we get to where my friend, some people are going to get to where my friend was stressing out about where they're going to get their next drink. And so you're stressed. What have you done in your stress cycle? You, you've numbed it only yeah. to the point of adding more stress in your life about, you know, continuing that substance. And yes, COVID, you, you talk about that being that existential stressor, that existential trauma. I just, I pulled some of the stats on, on what has happened with alcohol use during COVID. Um, and I have both statistics and then I have an anecdote that I just think <laughs> says it all, but Alcohol use during the pandemic, on average, for people between 30 and 80, <laughs> large has, range, yeah, has gone up 14%. Wow. 
But, and this is what I I actually find a little scary. It's gone up 17 and uh, percent for women. If we're going to look specifically at women, 19% between people age 30 and 60% and binge drinking, which is four or more drinks in two hours has increased by 41% for women, 41% for women. I mean, that's, that's, that's a scary statistic. And I can tell you, I, so during COVID, one of the divorces I was mediating was um, a couple that owned wine stores mm-hmm. and their business went through right. the roof during COVID. And at one point they sent me a picture of the outside of one of their stores and it was car after car pulling up in front of the store and popping the trunk. And a runner would come from the store with a box of wine and put it in the trunk and they would drive off. And in fact, I live in Chicago. You want to talk about a place that, that you know, celebrates alcohol. And that was a common sight in front of every liquor store, which is on every block in the city, was car. I mean, it became so easy to get, you could get your alcohol delivered. You could go pick it up by popping your trunk in front of a store. Nobody was monitoring your consumption because now you're just ordering it from Uber delivers or whatever. Right. At least in New York, there's this Drizzly, which is a delivery of, of booze to your house. And, you know, I would be okay with people drinking who have substance use disorder, if we had in this country, a really beautiful healing process yeah, <laughs> or we had good health treatment, treatment program. Yeah. Exactly. Like the problem is this is not easily solved because of the kind, how the changes it does to your brains and because of the services that we don't really have. So it's not like breaking your leg where you break your leg and they fix it and you have crutches. Like this is, first of all, it's a disease. If you struggle with it, that impacts everybody that, you know, so I remember this image and maybe you've heard of this Susan, where imagine someone drinking a bottle of something and that there it's going down their esophagus and out to everybody that they know, like everyone else is drinking and it deeply affects your family members, your coworkers, your, your friends, it it impacts everybody around you and really impacts you. And there's so much healing to do. And, and we just don't have good enough supports. And, you know, we know many people who've gone to, and my, my ex-husband went to three rehabs that were, this was 15 years ago, but each of them were $25,000. Right. Insurance did not cover those. We had to take out loans and he drank every time he came out the next day. Right. And so we just don't have, we don't, it's a, it's a progressive disease and we don't have the services here. So you want to help yourself because it's very hard to heal from. I mean, I think that's the truth. Yeah. Well, and it's become even harder just as all mental health um, yes. access to, to resources has gotten harder during, I'm not telling you anything as a mental health provider that you don't know. Right. But there are less beds available. There yes. are, you know, there's just less availability. You, when's the last time you were able to take on a new patient just to, for, for, you know, yeah. a, a, 
routine mental health issue. Right. I, I don't know that there are any, right? But I don't know a therapist. I know a lot of therapists. I don't know any who are taking on new patients. I have several who can't even handle the patient load that they have and people are so desperate. And it's the same thing with needing help with alcohol abuse. You know, there's just very little. It's it's more intractable than so many of the other problems that we may face. And yet, as you just said, you can go to rehab three times, spend $75,000 and pick up a drink the next time you, the day you leave. I think exactly. the average is something like it takes nine, nine. rehab I think nine. visits. I think um, it's nine. Yeah, nine, nine. And, nine. and they're not 25,000. I mean, I've dealt with this with some clients over the years and some of these programs are now you know, thirty, forty, fifty thousand yeah. dollars or yeah. more. You want to go to that nice one in Malibu? That right. one's a hundred thousand dollars for thirty days. Um, so, and you can't get in. Hello, listeners. It's Susan. I just want to give you a few resources if you are curious and are looking for some more information or for some support in dealing with an alcohol abuse or use issue. So the first number is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's hotline. That's 1-800-662-HELP, H-E-L-P, or 4357. So 800-662-4357. You can also access a great deal of information at the Alcoholics Anonymous website, which is www.aa.org, O-R-G, or Al-Anon, which is www.al-anon.org. Both of those have a huge number of anonymous resources, can tell you how to get to a meeting, which these days are all online. You can access one anywhere in the world and be as anonymous as you like, as curious as you like. So I encourage you to reach out for help. You can also send an email to us here at the podcast at divorceandbeyondpod at gmail.com. You are not alone. Stay tuned for more from my talk with Dr. Elizabeth Cohen, the divorce doctor, as we shed some light on the difficult issue of alcohol use disorder. What kids need is one, at least one consistent adult in their life. If you can be consistent, regulate your emotions and your substance use and be there for them and be present, they will understand what it's like to not feel that with their other parent. If you are enjoying this episode, check out last week's show with Sylvia Fodi, the best-selling author of The Nazi's Granddaughter, who gives you tips and insights into overcoming denial and loss of identity. The truth to me is immutable. It's objective. What happened has happened, and you cannot change what happened as much as you would like to, as much of a spin you would like to put on it. And so I hung on to that. Once I finally realized that my only job is to write the truth, that sort of freed me of all those negative emotions to focus on just telling the truth to the best of my ability. 
And now we return to today's show. For people who are going through a divorce, I get it. Going through a divorce is incredibly stressful. It is probably the most stressful thing that you could do. We've talked about this before, Susan. Courts do not understand substance use disorder. They are in like the 1950s. I mean, they do not understand it. They think it's willpower. So if you are noticing, if you go through a divorce, an increase in drinking, please know that that is very dangerous. And you can speak to this too, for your litigation, for your mediation. It is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Oh, well, and it's, you know, this is a problem that, you know, it's not by chance that so many people where there's an alcohol use disorder in the family end up in divorce. Unfortunately, the stress, the additional stress that alcohol use disorder will bring to a relationship very often is something that couples can't get beyond for, for many good reasons. But it's also in a divorce case, one of the most difficult problems to deal with because it's not something that's easily provable and it's not something that's easily monitored and it's not something that's easily stopped. So all of those things meet, I mean, a judge isn't going to order someone, well, you stop drinking, right? Right. Court order. I banged my gavel. It's like, it's not like waving a magic wand. I mean, that's why my listeners know I'm such a strong supporter of Soberlink. You know, it's at least, not at least, it is a way to either give somebody accountability so that they know that their alcohol use is going to be known. Or if you're being accused of having an alcohol problem and you feel you don't have one, it's a way to prove that you don't. Um, So at least it gives some accountability and a way to build back some trust if you are getting past an alcohol use disorder. Because I I do want to say, we've been talking about how hard it is to get help. You can. People recover from or or are so, live sober lives and get beyond a dependency upon alcohol or and other substances. Yeah. Um, so that is yep. a possibility. One thing I want to make sure we touch on while we have time is you mentioned already take the drink and it it comes yeah. shooting out in all the directions. Let me tell you some of the effects that I found in my my research, effects of having an alcoholic parent or a parent with alcohol use disorder on children. So the effects of growing up around alcohol use and abuse are sometimes so profound, they last a lifetime for children. Uh, Here are just a few of the ways that it can affect children. They have trust issues. They are incredibly hard on themselves and have self-judgment issues. They have incredibly low self-esteem. They have interpersonal issues and they themselves have relationship problems. They use and abuse alcohol at a much higher rate. They suffer from anxiety, depression, and PTSD at a much higher rate. And they almost universally have poor academic performance. And those are just a few. I I just picked some of the ones that are, you know, at the higher end of the spectrum, but they go, the list went on so long, it was actually very depressing to read it. And that, but the one highlight that the article that I was reading made was sometimes knowing that is enough for someone to stop and take that look at their use of alcohol because it takes them outside of themselves and 
seeing that that effect is a generational thing and that they are going to visit some of these things on their children. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, that's what a powerful list that is. I mean, so I feel really compelled to say that, um, to explain a little bit about what happens. So when you have a parent who is numbing out, like, because a lot of times people think, oh, this must come from a violent alcoholic. No, you have a parent who is numbing out and not present and unpredictable, which is just what happens when you drink, like whether you're an alcoholic or not, children interpret parents' behavior. If, if they can't, if parents don't explain why something is happening, they interpret it as being their fault. They try to walk around and predict what's going to happen. You did a beautiful, smart thing, Susan. You made your dad the drink. That was a way of connecting to him, right? But yeah. it was also, it also probably has led you without having to disclose to doing things, serving people in ways that don't set, fit you, but fit the other person, right? Exactly. 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 100%. Exactly. So we do these things to get, help us get through that worked when we were younger, but don't work anymore. So being a perfectionist when your parent is an alcoholic is a great <laughs> yeah. because they're not going to get mad at you or you're, you know, or being really quiet or not trusting people. All of those things work really well. That list works well when you're in that home, but then you grow up and you still have those. So it's, it, it deeply affects children in the, the core of themselves. I can already hear listeners who are listening, who have a partner who has substance use disorder and you don't worrying, oh my God, my kids are going to be so messed up. What kids need is one, at least one consistent adult in their life. If you can be consistent, regulate your emotions and your substance use and be there for them and be present, they will understand what it's like to not feel that with their other parent. They have something to compare, right? They don't know that's how everyone is. Exactly. Because yes. many of us who grew up in substance use disorder had one parent who was using and the other who was enabling. And so there was no parent to say, this is not okay. But if you are that person in this divorce, that's hugely healing. So I just don't want people to get too catastrophic about yeah, it. No. And I'm I'm so glad you raised all of that. And, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted this episode. I just feel that this is a topic. We're not saying to anyone out there, or I'm going to say this, we don't have any of the solutions. This is a difficult, difficult problem that people are going to struggle with forever. But awareness and shining a light on it are, are the first step to any improvement in your life over this problem. You know, Susan, you just brought up such an important point. And this is what I love about your podcast. You always shine the light on really tough um, important things to talk about. You're so brave in this. And especially for substance use disorder, because the biggest emotion behind it is shame, shame and stigma, no shame here. Like you are doing the best you can and you are having a trouble, like managing your emotions by using this thing. There is shame is what keeps people using. Mm -hmm. And so we are here to say, there is no blame or shame here. We are here to say you can live a bigger, better, more grounded life. Because those of you who are listening, who are curious about your, your use of alcohol, you know, your life's limited because of it. Right. 
and, and we're telling you it's not an easy road and there's not a lot of easy answers to this, but you, there is no shame in this. And that's, you used exactly the word that I, I don't think, you know, this is where I think there's that big convergence between divorce and, and alcohol use is they both are shameful. Yes. They both have stigma around them. You said judges think it's a self-control thing. You can just stop. Um, you know, people think, well, you're just a bad person. You couldn't make your relationship work. I mean, this is where our society really does put shame on people that we then internalize. And it comes around both these things. And God forbid you put the two of them together. Now yes. we have divorce and we have alcohol use. And it's really, truly such a trauma for people to live with that, unfortunately, as you just said, it, it continues that cycle. And so divorce is a time where, because it's so stressful, if you were using alcohol to numb out, to not deal with the difficult emotions of your relationship that wasn't working, and now you're going through a divorce that's difficult, it may seem even more appealing to go have that drink, numb out from that, et cetera. So it just continues to escalate for you. I just, I really, truly wanted an episode with someone like you who's so wonderful about being able to talk about, you know, these, these difficult issues in a compassionate way, because I know that you can. And, and it's not just, you know, know that we have compassion for you. And I know one thing you always say is that people need to have compassion for themselves. Well, that's what I was just thinking as you were talking, like I have so much compassion for people who are struggling and beating yourself up. I mean, this is not a willpower issue. This is a disorder. This is a disease. This is a brain chemistry issue that happens once you start using those reward systems. This is not your fault. I made a big mistake um, that I have made um, apologies for to my ex-husband. I didn't give him the dignity to have his own process. He needed to get sober in his own way. And I thought I knew how he was supposed to do it as a professional. And and I, I didn't know. He he had his own his own trajectory. And it wasn't until he was ready for all of you who are with people who have substance use disorders, or if you have substance, it's, you'll be ready when you're ready. And that's why, by the way, it takes nine times. It's not because the treatments are terrible. It's because most people usually go because someone else wants them to go. Yep. You'll know when you're ready and then it will work, but it will only be when you're ready. And when you love someone who's struggling with a substance use disorder, love them even harder. Yeah. Stay away from criticizing and judging because I promise you, and those of you who struggle with this know this, they're the, their biggest critic. They're their biggest judge. They don't need any more judges. So try to find some compassion for yourself, for your partners, that you're really doing the best you can with the tools you've had. And maybe there's some better tools out there. And, and seek that help. You know, the one thing I, I will share about my dad's journey, you know, I love my dad very, very, very much. And, and I'm so sorry that he had this struggle throughout his life. I mean, it really was, he died from cirrhosis and alcoholism, um, liver cancer, all based on that. And you know, the last words my dad ever said to me were, I, I did this to myself. And it's the saddest thing for me to know that at the end of his life, that was where he he was, and it was that substance 
that that brought him there and those feelings as he looked back with with some regret on his life. And I didn't want that for him. And I don't want that for other people, anyone I love, but anyone who's listening. Um, this is this is something that you can get ahead of. That you, there is hope and there is help and, and, you know, alcohol use awareness and use of abuse awareness. What we're truly, really trying to do is shine some light, give you that moment to take that pause and do some thinking around your relationship with alcohol. And that's all that you really need to address. We're not, you know, and, and then if, if you feel that you have something that needs some help, there, there are you know, reach out for that help. The one thing I do want people to know, I mean, one of the, probably the most successful way to stop drinking is the oldest way or the one, the oldest one I know of Alcoholics Anonymous, AA is still helping people. I I don't even know how old it is. It started a hundred years ago. Some, some good long 1940 something. Okay. 1940. We're coming up on a hundred years. If you are someone who is, in a relationship or has a family member, um, Al-Anon is truly something that I, you know, is a resource for you that will change your entire, you know, life and your relationship with how you are dealing with someone who has an alcohol use and uh, substance abuse problem. But, mm-hmm. and, and if you can just, you know, there's always information out there. I'll put links to some in the, in the show notes. Do you have anything that you recommend? Yeah. Well, one thing I just wanted to say is that we'll meet you wherever you are. So you don't have to be ready to go to a rehab. You don't have to be ready or want to go to an A meeting, which by the way, are wonderful. So as Alan on, they're all over zoom. Now you can get to a meeting anytime you can have your camera off. You can turn the volume off, you know, just try it. So it's easy. Now you can talk to a therapist and be curious. I really want everyone to think about the word curious because there's a gentleness to that. You're not going to get through this alcohol use disorder with a hard whip. It's not going to work. One of the things about any program is there's gentleness, compassion, and love for yourself. So if you're listening and you're thinking, huh, I really, my drinking really has increased since COVID. I wonder what that might be like. I wouldn't suggest you try to stop drinking, by the way. A lot of people try to do that and then see how they're doing. Like that can be very dangerous. Reach out to a therapist, call a helpline and just be curious about it. Just be curious. Don't judge yourself. Take it really slow. We we really talk about being ready to change. So you could be minus three ready to change. You don't have to be ready to change. You can be wherever you are. Just be curious. Ask your partner, hey, have you noticed my drinking has increased? If you feel comfortable, ask a friend. Start again, start talking about it. This is this month is such an important month for us to shine the light on this. That there's should there's no shame in this at all. And one of the things that's so helpful, I think, about AA and Al-Anon is that you you are with other people. So it gets rid of the shame. All these other people who've grown up with alcoholism or married to an alcoholic or or struggle with alcoholism themselves. Like you hear stories and you have compassion for the other people that you can then maybe apply to yourself. Because if you can have compassion for this person, a client of mine said the other day, like he was sitting in a meeting, this person had said that he had um, killed someone in a drunk driving accident when he was drinking. And he had so, my client had so much compassion for this other man. And he thought, if I can have that level of compassion for him, how could I not have it for myself? 
And so this is about compassion, love, and acceptance. And the truth is substance use comes from fear, despair, and hopelessness. The antidote to that is love, compassion. That's it. It's so true. And, and, you know, the other part is, and, and the other reason to share, shine the light is just to let you know, you're not alone. Definitely. You're not, you're not the only person struggling with this. You, there's help out there and there are people, there is no shame in this. So I love that you, you always, you always are able to say the things that I just, I don't even have a plan when I ask you on the show anymore. I just know we're going to have an episode and this is, this is exactly what I wanted for people to be able to hear. So thank you so much. Again, I will put resources and I'm going to put links to all of Dr. Elizabeth's episodes in the show notes for those of you who have not had an opportunity and a link to her book because every single one of her episodes with me and by the way, her podcast, the divorce, the divorce doctor podcast, please go and and check that out as well, because there's always hope and inspiration and you're not alone in everything that Dr. Elizabeth does. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Susan, for having me. for joining me today on the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I hope you found some information and inspiration to help you on this journey. Please join me every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new episode. And if you like the show, please take the time to subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find more information on the website at divorceandbeyondpod.com where you'll find links to the YouTube channel, transcripts of the episodes, and other bonus content. So I'll see you next week to help you move through your divorce and beyond.